0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. I'm Eileen Julian, Director of the Institute for Advanced Study at Indiana University of Bloomington, and I'm also a professor in French, uh, in Italian, comparative literature, and African studies. This afternoon, we are going to have uh, a panel on. Uh, here we are, cultural trauma and documentary making. So this morning when Jane Ohmeyer, um dismissed us, um, she said she hoped that this panel would be as wonderful as the last, and I think that we have the making of a very provocative panel this afternoon. We've got three three presenters talking about three different regions of the world. Indonesia, for one, Brazil, and Ireland. Um, and. These are documentaries that are, that, that at least I've looked at them to the extent possible. They have very different foci, very different uh, foci, different aspects of, of, the, of the question of trauma and, and documentary labor. Um I don't know, perhaps you all are familiar, maybe more familiar than I, really, with documentaries as a, as a mode. But one of the things I've learned, actually based on a student paper, is that documentaries actually make arguments. They aren't simply objective. And I think you'll sense that in these films. In fact, each of these films, I think, that, that, that the speakers will be talking about are sub-genres. There are many genres, I would say, of documentaries. Um, so, This, actually, this panel has resonance for me because I was co-founder and co-director of the New Orleans African Film and Arts Festival from 2008 to 2012. And as a resident of New Orleans, um, I've lived through some, some, let us say, collective trauma in the form of not only historical issues of racism, but also um, Hurricane Katrina, and several documents that have been made around that particular um, experience. So it is a great pleasure for me to, um, to preside over this panel, and I look, look forward to, the, to the, um, the presentations of each of these speakers, and I'm sure you will really learn a lot, and I think be very provocative. So we have three, three speakers, as I've said. The first is Esther Hamburger, who is uh, here from the University of Sao Paulo. Then we have Joyce Liu, who is at the University of in, in Taiwan. What's the name of the university?
1: <laughs>
0: You've heard it from Joyce <laughs> <laughs> And then we have Brianna Nick Dramata, who is goes back and forth between um, University of Notre, Notre Dame and coming home to Ireland, so she does that frequently. So we'll begin with Esther. And if you would please say something about your own work and your own history uh, with, with film, if you wish to do so.
2: stimulates. Documentaries and other audiovisual forms are implicated in reverberating violence and state violence. So it's wonderful to have a session on that and other activities. The crisis of institutional politics, the rise of populist and nationalist leaders, increasing social inequalities, are some of the common themes in the current debates. What can documentaries say about these issues? How can they intervene against violence and discrimination? In the digital world, documentary has flourished as a privileged audiovisual space for alternative voices to circulate. Archives, testimonies, auto-fiction, and activism feed this documentary boom across different global and local platforms? Can documentaries address discrimination and at the same time contribute to dismantling prejudices? How can violence be approached without reinforcing fear and prejudice? One trend in Brazilian contemporary film has associated poverty and violence. Films in this trend originated what is known in the circuit of international festivals as favela situation. Some of them are documentaries, others are documentary based. In the first two decades of the 21st century, these films seem to have captured global anxieties with increasing inequalities. 1999 doc News of a Private War and 2002 well-known feature City of God have provoked an intertextual film debate on how to, how to film popular communities without reinforcing class, gender, and race discrimination. Documentary bloomed in this debate enriched by emerging voices from communities that before had not had the few means to express themselves. Today I focus in White Out Black In, a documentary that expands the boundaries of documentary by including stage performance and science fiction. It turns a local case of state aberration into public cinematic experience. In the absence of documents, the film produces evidence and becomes part of an inconstruction, informal archive of cases of state violence. So we we talked about archives this morning. This is a case of producing archive. I start, um, how do I? with background information on the Brazilian case. Between 1984 and 2014, Brazil experienced perhaps the most democratic period in its near 500 years history. Until recently, the country was an against the wave case study in a world threatened by the increase of social inequality. Chapters on in book collection, Paths of Inequalities, have demonstrated that in the last 30, 40, and in some cases, 50 years, there has been a continuous decrease in Brazilian social inequalities. This includes a whole contingent of young people, first in their families, to get university degrees, in some cases in film. In the 21st century, in the wake of a broad process of democratization set off in the 1980s, there has been a diversification of the mechanisms of production and circulation of moving images. Digital technology favors this diversity, but in Brazil and possibly in other countries marked by social inequalities, the meaning of this diversification is an especially sensitive issue because it involves situations, historical discrimination, invisibility, trauma, and resentment of various natures. Digital diversification in such situations acquires a sensitive political dimension. Favela situations films provoked transmedia references and stimulated the appropriation of the moving images by emerging filmmakers. Stimulated by the drive to tell their own stories in their own places, emergent filmmakers created radical forms to denounce the persistence of a kind of inconclusive citizenship in territories under the embattled control of organized crime and state violence. In times of reduction of poverty in Brazil, compelling documentary forms emerged in places where cinema has not been possible before. Perhaps we can say that there is a change in the distribution of the sensible, to use the terms by Jacques Rancière. Nonetheless, films revealed a parallel <coughs> reality viewers, politicians included, did not want to face. The diversification of voices and forms, the case of Adjulé Queiroz in Ceylange. White Out Black Inn appropriates documentary and takes the liberty of enacting tra- traumatic memories of traumatic situations. In giving form to historic but invisible and non documented events, White Out Black Inn shares the pain. The express the, the experience of watching provokes uneasy feelings, but perhaps it also opens up possibilities of imagining ways of living together. To paraphrase world art. Winner of the twenty fourteen Brazil International Festival, White Out Black In was produced in Ceilandia. A satellite city of Brasília, the national capital, whose name comes from Campaign to Eradicate Invasions, an euphemism for an operation that expelled the workers who built the modernist city in the late 50s and their families from the urban area. During the first years of military dictatorship, similar programs for transferring populations to distant places without infrastructure were carried out in other metropolitan areas, including the case of City of God in Rio de Janeiro. White Out Black Inn recounts the case of two black friends, a musician and a soccer player, who became handicapped due to police violence abuse during a party in March 1986. In the film, a sci-fi style agent comes from the future in order to investigate and to collect evidence about police abuse in this case. As a science fiction doc, White-Owned Black Black Duck is precariously constructed. But the strength of the film relies in its imaginative spatial construction of Ceylandia's urban landscape, and in the interior settings where the two handicapped characters live surrounded by smart gadgets. One one is an imaginative and powerful DJ, the other is a well-established prosthesis dealer whose house lab reminds us of post-Vietnam registers of US, U.S. wounded Marines. Unlike other favela situations, films which construct dark, confined spaces, white out black in, allows us to see contemporary Salanga self-constructed of abundant imagination, which contrasts with the emptiness of the monument modernist spaces built in the pilot plan of the federal capital. The film starts with, out, with an outside image. Shortly afterwards, the camera registers marquee moving downstairs on a special platform towards an enchanted basement, a secret bunker, a Batman hut, the brain of the Matrix, or the radio station that encouraged, encouraged the character from Easy Rider. The feeling is that of a place of command. The rapper and DJ sits at his sound table and goes on to narrate in details the events of a party in March 1986. The beat starts along with the first person singular voice. The time is the present. In ancient Ceylandia, about 30 years before the time of the film. It's Sunday, seven o'clock at night. I'm already wearing my sneaker. He goes on. <laughs> the power of the interpretation carries us away. We are with Marquin at the crime scene. His vocal performance is breathing. The body sways at the microphone. He tells his story in musical form. We follow him to the Sunday night hall. Static pictures of young. Static pictures of young men, great dancing, illustrate his memories, fragments of evidence from those happy times before the tragedy. He's a popular dancer. Cinematographic imagination functions as the space where the victims of the state criminal action bounce back. They tell their story. They guide us through the spaces of their community. Instead of violent gangsters, Young Blacks are presented at happy, as happy dancers who had their bodies and their lives disrupted by state abuse. Science fiction appeals to the future as a possible time when the atrocities of the present and of the past should be compensated for, just as pastime slavery takes its place in the struggle against discrimination that continues to haunt the present. Science fiction justifies the production of testimonies and the imagination of a revenge. Within the conventions of science fiction, testimonies are not given in front of a scrutinizing camera in search of scars and tears. The, the performance of the DJ in his enchanted basement, the Jinga that survives the paralysis of his paraplegic body, comes true beyond documentary and in favor of documenting. This film is at once Document and Revenge, a documentary bomb. In control of the production of the images, victims conquered the virtual space of film. They also demonstrate that the mutilation of their bodies did not prevent them from carrying on and from achieving some degree of command, including the staging of their own lives. In this film, two protagonists share their trauma as a way to overcome it. Anne Kaplan speaks of the problem of discerning personal from collective trauma, direct and mediated trauma. In this case, we learn about the community trauma through the experience of two young men whose bodies were the target of discrimination. The story they tell speaks of overt racism in a country that resists admitting the existence of racism. In the wake of post-structuralist elaborations on what archives reveal about the organization of knowledge and uh, and about the relations between knowledge and powers, they document, and the powers they document, archival films have a strength of their own. The work of German filmmaker Karun Farocchi with different kinds of images has inspired insightful interpretation on the cinematic potential of re-elaboration of the archival image. Who de Loa, a Brazilian film about based on archival images from broadcast television on a local case of female homicide, suggests the ways in which archival documentary might contribute to raise awareness about discriminatory newscast conventions. The lack of archival image has also inspired insightful interpretation. Hichipan, especially in Limage Moncant, The Missing Picture, has elaborated on the problem of enacting his own memories when the documents that could attest for the state violence he testified were destroyed or did not exist. Like Adrielai Keroz, this Cambodian survivor from the Khmer Rouge dramatized violence, but he used clay figurines with his own testimony voiceover. over Agilei Queiroz works with live action and with his friends' performances of their their own stories. Like H.I.G.Punk, he uses fantasy and imagination to compensate for the lack of documentation. And Kaplan, in the above quoted work, relies on testimonies she finds in the streets of New York City in the aftermath of the 9-11 events, to counteract what she feels is homogenizing sensational media treatment of trauma, a treatment that contributes to reinforce and disseminate traumatic experience. The films of by Adelaide Keros can be thought of in the conjunction of archive testimony and performance. They flirt with auto fiction in their attempt to go beyond the homogeneous treatment of popular communities but perhaps the most suggestive way to interpret them is to highlight that they produce archives, documents, and testimonies. In 2014, while the Truth Commission investigated the underground of the 1964-84 military dictatorship, White Out Black Inn suggests that investigating popular memories might bring to public attention non-registered cases of state violence, even under democracy. White Out Black in exposes the absence of archives, furthermore, it provides what's missing, and it does so on the non-victimizing popular science fiction register. There are other examples of uh, filmmakers, emerging documentaries from uh, diverse communities in Brazil right now. The Brazilian filmography relates to the international contemporary debates on the power of documentaries to fill in gaps, consolidate memory, and to overcome trauma. Critical work on cross culture and cross-history filmographies helps to think about these transnational bridges, updating the contemporary world issues posed by filmographies and theories that have investigated and continue to investigate the paradoxes of the image in a world of screens. The issue of how to contribute to disarticulate violence, trauma and discrimination is at the core of contemporary documentary making and documentary studies. This is not only a matter of what to film, but also a matter of how to film. Coming from below is both a political and an aesthetic problem.
1: In the case of Southeast Asian countries, the fragility or frailty of the democratic system, besides frequently discussed uh, issues of chronic capitalism, corruption, and dual or multiple uh, juridical systems, is actually often linked to the arbitrary status division of citizens' or differentiated citizenship status. In post-Cold War period—no, in post-World War II or post-colonial period—so-called Cold War period—several hot wars, large-scale massive killings and genocide, and enforced concentration camps took place in different countries in this region. This traumatic event, I want to argue, contributed to the making of unequal citizenship in Southeast Asia. Uh, and also particularly through juridical processes and still are affecting these countries ideologically and emotionally. I shall focus on the case of the 30th of September movement in 1965 and the genocide of the aftermath that took for uh, several months. There are actually parallel cases in Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, including South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, Cambodia, and uh, Thailand, and Malaysia, and Indonesia. <coughs> and here I want to focus on, of course, this case in, uh, in Indonesia, but I, I want to discuss the ambiguous double edged function of documentaries, or docudrama, movies. In retelling the story, reenacting the events, documenting testimonies, archiving images, recording oral histories, and taking uh, the event as a founding trauma of the state, this mode of reenactment could easily enhance the narrative from the victim's point of view. And at the same time, legitimize the ruling regime that displays the larger truth. How to avoid this trap of a single perspective but still to seek the truth and reveal a larger reality is my concern. I shall be talking about these three, uh, but I'll go to the details later. This 19... 65-66 the 66 genocide in Indonesia has caused the deaths of more than 1 million people and some said 2.5 million, mostly Chinese Indonesians. According to the official account of the Sohato regime, the, this movement, the 30th uh, of September in 1965, is planned as a coup d'etat organized by the Communist Party of Indonesia. The descendants of the victims uh, after this genocide event were exiled into the jungle and isolated uh, from the mainland, cannot go to school, cannot work, cannot get married, and no public reconciliation, no remedy, and so on. But this event, uh, recent studies have shown that this event is actually an anti-public uh, republican counter-revolution against a so uh socialist oriented uh, regime uh, but the post eventual uh, juridical reform has made indonesian citizenship into a form of again an indirect rule in a reverse way of the colonial period and allowed local elite to act the dipos- dip- dip- past and it's a form of actually a new colonialism, an internal colonialism. The constitution of the colony in the Dutch East India created a racial division of the population into three categories. Europeans and their equivalent group, mostly Christian, far eastern, mainly Chinese and Arab, such as uh, so-called Captain China, and indigenous people. The indirect rules through the policy of divide and rule made the indigenous people the lowest group within the population, and it was the primary reason for the reversal of the social status in the post-colonial nation-building practice. The use of the letter of proof of nationality uh, of the Republic of Indonesia in the new uh, order regime of Suharto uh, period, created discriminative practices concerning Chinese people in cases such as their uh, application for identity, identity card, or uh, or passport, or marriage, or birth and death, uh, certificate, and so on. Some Chinese Indonesian, even though they have resided in this area, uh, region for several hundred years, starting from the uh, 17th century, they, but they could not obtain a letter of proof of nationality because they were unable to pay for the fee due to their weak uh, economic conditions, and consequently suffered severe discrimination treatment till today. And some of them cannot, some regions, two provinces, uh, forbid them from owning uh, pr- uh, land or participating political uh, activities fairly. So this all are equal before the law and are, un- are entitled without any discrimination to equal protection of the law becomes an open lie in the so-called democratic system in some countries till today. Democracy does not belong to all demos, that is, all people in a country. The state divides people according to their religion, ethnicity, race, gender, origin, and other factors, and forbid them equal access to the social space. The structural violence of the state division lies not only in the lines of a, a, a book, book of law or the police force in the violent uh, uh, riot control action, but also in the border consciousness in people's mind or the hidden mentality of juridical ideology that separate uh, and even segregate social uh, societies among Citizens were so-called city dwellers, people living in the same space. The most startling fact of the 30th of the uh, September event of the 1965 is that till today, the full account of this historical incident has neither been fully uncovered or, or nor officially acknowledged by the government. Actually, recent studies also showed that CIA of course, uh, intervened uh, and helped the bloody uh, overthrow of this um, uh, Indonesian President Sukarno. And the scenario of this event was uh, actually a convenient pretext for implementing the pre-existing plan for the army to seize the power together with a black propaganda operation undertaken by United States Great Britain, Australia, Germany, and Japan. So, they are in intelligent uh, services. And the massacre was conducted by the armies and cooper- cooperated actually by the villagers in a wa- very widespread spontaneity. The new older regime since 1967, shortly after the incident, was to stabilize the Suharto regime, to stigmatize the Communist Party as well as the Chinese, and to prioritize the indigenous population to legitimize Islam religion, and became a core foundation of Indonesian nationalism. And this anti-communist witch-hunting activities prevailed over, over the three decades of the New Order rule. This uh, documentary, uh, Treachery of G30s PKI, that is a Communist Party, uh, written and directed by uh, director Noah, sponsored by Sohato's New Order government, is a four hour docudrama movie reenacting the event. And the event Actually, uh, this movie is actually the most broadcast and most watched Indonesian film of all time, and the main factor for the widespread dissemination of, of the official narrative of this incident. The film actually is a mandatory viewing material uh, and is shown at school and government uh, institutions. According to a survey done by the Indonesian magazine Tempo about this, uh, uh, the, the questionnaire was about domestic threat to Indonesian uh, communities conducted in 1984 and 85. Communist researching turned out to be the most fierce threat to Indonesian uh, people, ranking well above the, the uh, issue of corruption. Another survey done by the same magazine, done in 2002 and 3, indicated that 97% of the students around, uh, than a thousand, had seen the film, and 87% of them had seen them more than one time. School students actually were dramatized, traumatized by the bloody scene in the movie, and had a deep-rooted antagonism and a fear and hatred against the communists, Chinese. That could explain the, the anti-Chinese riots in this uh, 1998, after the Asian financial crisis and and many cases of so-called frontier justice or street justice against the Chinese could uh, happen uh, in uh, different villages. Most people believe that the official account of the event as a historical trauma isn't historical trauma caused by the conspiracy of the communists. The film presented the Communist Party members as highly plotting and dangerous. And reflected also the fear of and indignant feelings of ordinary peasant families against the communist uh, members, and they, it portrayed Sohoto as a hero who managed to stabilize the situation after the coup. The director actually extensively studied official government sources, court documents, interviewed uh, numerous uh, eyewitnesses, and uh, used archival uh, footage and newspaper clippings uh, of the uh, contemporary uh, to the event, and emphasized particularly the historical uh, and cinematic realism. But the film, nevertheless, did not mention anything about the massacre. As we could see from Oppenheimer's uh, documentaries in The Act of Killing, this antagonism against the communist Chinese is still very alive among the general public, especially the Muslim communities, 50 years after the event. In the Indonesian national television program, Special Dialogue, produced in October 2007, that's filmed in uh, Oppenheimer's uh, documentary. The hostess of the program praised the beauty of the film, Anwar, Congo, and his team were shooting. And the leader of the paramilitary group, uh, this Bakasila uh, youth, claimed that the death of 2.3 million commoners was justified because God is against communists. Those communists are evil, and there should be no reconciliation. The act of killing and the look of silence directed by Joshua uh, Oppenheimer, American-born Danish director, actually serve as a sharp contrast to Noah's uh, docudrama. The former uh, executioner or perpetrator, Anwar a leader of this Hankasila uh, uh, in the city of Medan, and the uh, other perpetrators, they felt compelled to perform as accurately and vividly as possible about the past event they did. And according to some record, this uh, Anwar has executed more than a thousand people, to think of that. And when when they did it, they boasted about their heroic deed, and it seems to be enjoying in the moment of the reenacting. This scenes of reenactment created a multiple perspective of both the victimizer and actually the victimized. Um, So the dire fact of the cruelty of the event, and the, the... Challenges the fictionality of the governmental official narrative, but also the montage from the slaughtering uh, scene to the silence and tranquility of the sea, from the sadomasochistic reenactment to the of the execution scene to the jungle scene, And also, from the national television program of the group to the private collection of some of the wealthy people uh, they, they involved in the action. And of uh, these, uh, the, uh, the specimen of this uh, uh, animals created a piercing and poignant confrontation with the reality. The use of Adi, the automatist, as an interviewer in the second uh, uh, of this uh, companion piece, uh, Look of Silence, in search of the reality of the truth, the death of his brother, uh, is a brilliant take. The scarlet-framed eyeglasses serve as a metaphor or metonymy, and then metaphor, full of blindness and the disavower of the historical truth and the, the adjustment or the inability to adjust the eyesight. The horrible details of what these murderers did in the past were narrated with vivid physical reenactment, presented a series of visual images of those in Dante's Inferno and Bosch painting. The threatening words from the interviewees in 2012 was as real as a historical event in the past 50 years ago. The persecutors still are in power and live without being punished. And the teachers are still teaching the intimidating lessons of the communists in the classroom. And the mayors of the same village, the teachers and the neighbors in the same village, they are, they were the killers and they live in the same society. So Oppenheimer's documentaries raised a series of questions in his uh, work. Whether, this, whether it is possible or even adequate to present a realistic portrayal of the reality, he said, I consider it axiomatic that the past, the unspeakable reality, and the unspeakable real of what they did, the horror of what they did, is beyond our grasp. It is in the past, and the past itself is beyond our grasp. And yet, it still exerts its terrifying force in the present. It would actually displace precisely the past that he would seek to pin down, to fix, and to make knowable. For him, focusing on the executioner and asking them to re- reenact the execution scene is to find an outlet for them to talk about the horrifying. Counting path. His intervention showed us that the economy of the impunity, the fear, and the glorification in Indonesia, and to see the rotten heart of the present-day political system built by and presided over by killers. To me, Oppenheimer's documentaries, demonstrated the power of the intervention and confrontation face-to-face against the persistent politics of denial. By reenacting the affective dimension of the perpetrators, his documentaries brought forth the recollection of the memories of the cruelty in the past, the sadomasochistic reality of the political system of the past and of the present, while at the same time allow the audience to see what the role the cultural trauma played in making in the making of unequal citizenship in Indonesia, and how it is still alive for even 50 years after the traumatic event. The documentaries are, therefore, not of the past, but an archive of and a trove for the present. So, I'll stop here.
0: Jeremiah, who will talk to us about uh, the Irish rebellion in 1916.
3: casualties.
4: this documentary that tells that story went around the world. As indeed the event itself. So, what I just want to do briefly today is just to talk a little bit about how 1916, was a seminal moment in Irish history, uh, which was, you could say, a, a drop in the ocean, but that ripple went around the world. It led, of course, initially to the Irish Revolutionary Period, where we had a war of independence, a guerrilla war against the British, and a, a resultant civil war in Ireland and uh, the establishment of an Irish state, partitioning partition of the island Ireland. But it also went beyond that. And um, I think it is it's safe to say that uh, its influence went as far as India. Certainly the links there with the Bengali uh, nationalists was, was, was quite large, as well as other parts of Africa and the emerging decolon uh, decolonized world decolonizing world. Thank you. So uh, The use of film, and in particular documentary film, in the interpretation of history, and its importance as a vehicle to shape and inform historical discourses, and indeed to engage with cultural trauma, has been much discussed and debated by historians, film scholars, and filmmakers alike. Major documentary series, such as ITV's The World at War, which dealt with the second world war on a global scale, which which was shown in 1973-74 and Ken Burns' uh, The Civil War, which then, of course, with the American Civil War, had shown that series history could not only attract mass audiences, but could also add a immeasurably to furthering an understanding uh, and, I think, an empathy with historical events. These two series, amongst others, showed sure clearly that the medium of television often being depicted by some of its academic detractors as being prone to oversimplifications and lack of nuance, was indeed a valid and valuable form of historical inquiry. Writing shortly before his death in 2009, J.M. Burrow, member of the British Academy, fellow of Balliol College, Oxford, and widely acclaimed as one of the leading intellectual historians of his generation, included Kenneth Burns' The Civil War in his History of Histories said that the film showed that, quote, "...genuinely new possibilities are also being explored, as a great distinction in the remarkable series made by Ken Burns and the American Civil War. Restrained but informative commentary, sensitive editing, haunting photographs and music, and readings from letters and diaries made this a deeply moving production, matching the scale of the events it recounted in a way no print book could do." Considered as the presentation of an epic theme on a grand scale, this is claimed to be the outstanding work of history of the late 20th century." And of course, that's a little bit of out of tune with our times, isn't it? Talking about grand narratives and epic themes. Uh, and yet, um, history, history, filmmaking, and, of course, historiography, now tends to be vertical, uh, tends to dig deep into an area. tells the story of the, of the individual, tells so the story of uh, of individual events, and schools generally any sort of attempted grand narratives or uh, um, contextualizing narratives. I think sometimes we need those desperately. And I think in terms of 1916, we've had them in Ireland. We've had documentaries made about the social conditions in Dublin in 19, uh, leading up to 1916. Uh, We've had uh, had documentaries about women, about individuals. but I must say, felt coming up to the centenary, that we really did need to look anew and afresh at, at 1916. And it's emotional impact as much as anything else. Um, I was based in a US university. I was a filmmaker based in a university that was called Fighting Irish. So having watched Canberra, I am really wondering, if we could possibly do something like that for the story of nineteen sixteen. And what I mean by that, what I think Ken Burns did, is he took a very controversial break, still a very sensitive and very traumatic period of American history. And he made it accessible to people, he gave back the people in sense their history in a very intimate way, in a very a way that was, like, was tangibly emotional. Um, so we really tried to think of we do something like that for nineteen sixteen. Um, but of course, for anyone contemplating making a documentary about the events of 1916, the Eastern Rebellion, uh, or the Irish revolutionary period at all, the masterpiece that is George Morrison's *Mishra Air* is Iron and this film overshadows all. case, I'm <laughs> Thank you. Um, so George Morrison, I think, who is an English filmmaker in Ireland, spent a lot of the late fifties researching and cataloging 20th century Irish newsreel footage in archives and collections throughout Europe. He found 17 hours of footage, some 400,000 feet of film, of course, this was all in the those States, uh, which was painstakingly restored by Morrison. Morrison had been commissioned by an organisation called Gaelin, which was an organisation dedicated to the preservation of the Irish language and development of the Irish language. And they commissioned Morrison to make and produce the first feature length film in Irish, which would tell the story of the Irish national struggle in the first two decades of the 20th century and would draw primarily on the actuality footage, the archival footage, and it to the on unearthed primarily was in the words of film historian Kevin Rockett, in effect, the official history of the struggle for independence. And what Masterson does most masterfully here is to combine the actuality of archival footage, which he stretched to slow down to normal speed, together with rostrum shots of photographic stills and contemporary documents including newspaper headlines, as well as weaving in newly shot footage which contained unforgettable epic shots of the sea, crashing on the rocks, and a rocky shore, and the tiny seeding of the land. This rich visual montage was held together by a narration script in Irish, written by Sean O'Grema, and most significantly magnified by a newly composed score by a man called Sean O'Reilly. He was a classical composer who had been experimenting with traditional forms of Irish music. And Morrison, of course, is Lance O'Reilly, was aware, particularly Morrison as director, was crucially aware of the nature and central importance of the score in this type of filmmaking. Uh, and he had shown a, real, a number of films uh, that he himself wished to emulate. These included the English documentarian John Grierson's very influential film, *Nightmare*, May, which had music by Benjamin Britten and a verse commentary by W. H. Oden, and while Raymond script, narrated by native Irish speakers Paul Drake O'Reilly and Ian wasn't formally verse. It was highly poetic in tone, drawing from and quoting many traditional political poems in Irish. And of course the title, Mission Era, echoes the title of, in fact takes its title from, uh, Patrick Pearce was the leader of 1916, his 1912 poem, Mission Era, I Am Ireland, where Pearce personifies Ireland as an old woman addressing her children. Pierce, of course, here was drawing on a poetic conceited joke that goes back to at least the medieval period that is the genuine of Ireland as female. This joke, by changing the to suit the contemporary's political reality, was central in the 18th century poetic genre known as the ashen or vision poetry, political poetry of the 18th century. And it is to one of the earliest of these political songs, wrote from Dove, Dark Rosalie, that Sean O'Reilly turned for his theme music, His reworking of Roisin Globe, performed by the Radio and Symphony Orchestra, conducted by O'Reilly himself, was both revolutionary and epic at the same time. What O'Reilly did with the soundtrack was to rework traditional Irish song and airs and score them for full orchestra, the first time this had been done. What the title and the soundtrack do, in effect, is to place the film into a non-broken, or very old or ancient discourse of nationalism and the struggle for independence. This sense of an unbroken and unified tradition of opposition to English rule was hugely important to nationalists in 1916 itself, or truth that might but as judged by the response to the release of the film, it, even in the late 1950s, early 1960s, continued to elicit a positive response among audiences in Ireland. It was an immediate triumph. There was no television, uh, uh, public television in Ireland, no television uh, broadcaster of any type in Ireland. Uh, some fa- some people in the East forget BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, but there was no Indigenous Irish broadcaster. So each era was shown in the cinemas and halls, community halls, throughout Ireland. And it was seen by between 170,000 to 180,000 people who received the wild and critically acclaimed. It had a momentous impact at the time, although that was somewhat lessened by the fact that Goelin, because of their Irish language, did not release any subtitle prints. This limited audience numbers within Ireland itself and totally diminished the possibility of an international audience. In terms of tone and tenor, Misha era was definitely of its time in its unashamed nationalist anti imperialist polemic. According to Barton of this parish, the popular success of what may be considered the crowning glory of the Irish documentary film movement in the post-war period, George Morrison's Mission Era, I Am Ireland, indicates that the heroic nationalist idiom still carried substantial appeal. Barton refers to another critic, Harvey O'Brien, who, she wrote, likened it to, quote, a celluloid monument to romantic nationalism and indeed, romantic nationalism, and the heroic nationalistic idiom, would have a further day in the sun with the 50th anniversary of the 1960s rising, of course, which occurred in 1966. By that time, the Irish national broadcaster, then known as Telefi Sharon, had been founded in 1962, and as early as 1964, several producers, including James Blunkett, a well known novelist, Jack White, and Andreas O'Galliford, had begun to record interviews with survivors of 1916 and the Revolutionary Period generally. These interviews, titled like the survivors, were never broadcast as full well programmes, uh, but would be utilised acted as an archive during the commemorative, commemorative programme the 50th anniversary. For a young broadcaster, the golden jubilee of the Rising presented opportunities, but also huge challenges. First, this was acting in two different audiences uh, within one. Firstly, those under 50 who had no personal experience or recollections of the events, and the other, the generation of the Rising themselves, including the participants, many of them still alive. These would have included the president, then President of Ireland, Iman de Valera, for being a leading competent in 1916 and had just barely escaped execution. Preparation for television coverage began in 1965. And one of the most interesting aspects of the coverage was the overall editorial line, which had been decided in advance of programming by both the 1916 programs committee itself and the statutory body responsible for the national broadcaster, the RTD Authority. One of the first and definitive decisions taken was that in 1916 be portrayed, quote, as a nationalist and not a socialist rising kind of woman. This, of course, despite the central role of James Connolly and the Irish citizen army in the rebellion itself. the South. Also, probably more crucially, the decision was taken that the tone and tenor of the coverage on all the programs should be, quote, idealistic and emotional, end quote as opposed to an approach that would be interpretive and analytical. In the words of the then controller of programmes, the Faraheim, <coughs> while still seeking historical truth, the emphasis will be on homage, on salutation, on the high emotion and daring of that week, which not only aroused the moribund mind of Ireland, but afterwards fired that considerable part of the world which until then was sunk in colonialism. four programme strands were decided upon. A documentary series drawing on the recollection of eyewitnesses, a docudrama series on certain characters and events over the course of Irish history titled The Long Winter and produced by James Plunkett, a drama series for young people written by the playwright Brian McMahon, and what is assumed to be the jewel in the crown, a series of dramatic reconstructions of various events of the rising entitled Insurrection, Produced and directed by Louis Lenton and written by leading playwright Hugh Leonard, Insurrection was hugely ambitious, involving location shoots on the streets of Dublin and reconstructions on a set of crucial sites such as the General Post Office in the heat of battle. Among the most interesting aspects of Leonard and uh, Lenton's approach was using the conceit of news reportage and running commentary, as if television crews had been present in 1916 back and forth from the reconstructions, to a reporter interviewing participants, to a studio anchor who would offer expenditure commentary. The role passed on Easter Sunday in 1966, and over seven subsequent nights, Insurrection was a popular and critical success. Interestingly, as the work progressed, and later as people reflected on the overall programming, it would be the lower-key documentary series that would surprisingly win out in terms of impact. This series <clears throat> was the factual series, called on behalf of the Provisional Government, by Andreas O'Gallapur, which is a profile of the seven signatories of the Proclamation. Paul Pierce, Tom Clark, James Connolly, Charlotte McDermott, Eamon Camp, Joseph Mary Clumpett, and Thomas Dunham. In the light of the advice and direction from the authority to view the rising through the eyes of 1916, O'Gallapur told story the story of the signatories through the recollection of family and friends and those who fought beside the leaders during Easter week. The series broadcast slightly during Easter week 1966 consisted of seven half-hour episodes scripted by the historian Owen Dodley Edwards and narrated by Niall Paul The immediacy and intimacy of these accounts had a profound effect on the audience and highlighted the impact of personal testimony and the power of living witness. Uh, one episode of particular where uh, Laura Connolly, who is the daughter of James Connolly, talks about the night of her father's execution is particularly poignant, and we use that again as archive footage in our, uh, in our version of 1916. But in every sense, the 1966 depictions of the Easter Rising signalled the end of an era. By 1969, simmering tensions in Northern Ireland fared up and soon erupted into full-scale conflict. On February 6, 1971, Governor Robert Curtis was shot dead by a newly resurgent Irish Republican Army, or IRA, the first British soldier to be killed in Ireland since 1920. That same day, the High Minister of Northern Ireland, Major James Chichester Clark, announced on television that, quote, Northern Ireland is at war with the IRA provisionals. Despite vehement denials, and uh, disputation from the major political parties in the South, uh, Fianna Foy and (coughs) Finnavale, both of whom traced their roots to 1916, as well as the Irish Labour Party, who traced their roots to James Connolly. The provisional IRA insisted that they were the direct heirs of Pearse and Connolly, and they were going to complete the unfinished business. In the midst of the continuing conflict and disputation, there was little appetite for engaging filmic representations of the events of 1916. Indeed, by the mid-70s, and in particular after the introduction of censorship under Section 31 of the Broadcasting Act of 1971, TE as was then known as television sharing, then became radio television sharing or TV. They were prohibited from broadcasting anything that could be interpreted as supporting the aims or activities of organizations, which, to quote the directive, engage in, promote, encourage, or advocate the attaining of any political objective by violent means. As the heady days of 1966 receded, any discussion or representation of the rising or its causes was circumscribed and caught up in political realities where history, far from remaining in the past, encroached upon the inhabitants <coughs> the present. In the words of historian John A. Murphy, the 50th anniversary was celebrated in the Republic in 1966, at a time of apparent economic and cultural resurgence, with great pomp and triumphalism, unaccompanied by any self-questioning on the great sacred event in modern Irish history, the foundation myth of the Irish state. From the early 1970s, however, the traditional approach was subjected to much critical scrutiny. In the context of the upsurge of violent nationalism in Northern Ireland, certain revisionist politicians, notably the Cruz of Browns, influentially in power in the 1970s, were arguing that public commemoration of 1916 only encouraged the cult of physical force and blood sacrifice, and gave aid and comfort to the provisional IRA. Easter in
5: 1916
4: was now seen as having left a danosa erudite in a scorification budget. In 1971, the official military parade past the GPO was canceled. And by 1976, on the 60th anniversary, just 10 years after what some described as the orgy of commemoration, in the absence of any government-sponsored activity, a proposed Republican parade down from Street to commemorate the rising was banned under the Offences Against the State Act, although it went ahead regardless, with some 10,000 people attending the banned march. The abandonment by the Irish state of any official commemoration of the Easter Rising was echoed by the absence on screen of any substantial re-examination at all, I might say, of 1960. In 1976, RTE produced one programme, which was a, a talk show, entitled Who Fears to Speak? There was little need for an answer. It was not until 1979 that the Easter Rising appeared on television screens as one of the episodes of the 13-part series, BBC, part BBC series, made by English historian and journalist Robert Key, entitled Ireland's Television History. It was shown simultaneously on BBC and RTE, who were also co-producers, in 1980 through 1981. It was shown uncut by RTE, even though some episodes were technical infringements of Section 31. valuable and interesting aspects of Key's programme on the Rising was the use he made of interviews with participants in the Rising, including uh, participants on the Republican side, also civilian witnesses, and also, very importantly, very interestingly, British soldiers. The rushes of these interviews are retained in the RTD archive, and again, certainly for us, proved to be a hugely valuable resource. It'll be a number of years, though, while the revisionist wars continued among historians and commentators before a dedicated documentary was made about the Rising, or in this case, the once revered, by now much more violent, figure of Patrick Pierce, the Rising's enigmatic leader. With the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement now in place, and the troubles in Northern Ireland apparently coming to an end, Steve Parsons' 2001 documentary, Patrick Pierce Fanatic Heart, uh, for Fororchy, described by the production company Mint as a biopic, sought to revisit Pierce's reputation and attempt to find out who the real Patrick Peirce might be. And again, the lack of a question mark in the title of Patrick Peirce, Fanatic Art, speaks volumes. When we began to develop and research our own project, we did not set out with a fixed thesis that we wanted to prove. We did, however, have firm views on an underlying approach. One of the most important things we wanted to do was to avoid the simplistic hagiography and glorification that was evidenced during the 50th anniversary, but also to go beyond the other extreme of demonization and amnesia and or amnesia that took hold throughout the 70s and 80s due to the troubles in Northern Ireland. 100 years on, as the dust of both heroic nationalism and revisionism settled, And in the aftermath of the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement, we hope to be able to find some space to look at the rising in a more generous spirit and to attempt to restore parts of the narrative that have been omitted either by accident or design. The Irish who fought in the Great War, for example, the role of women in 1916 itself, the destruction of civilian casualties caused by the rebellion, but also, importantly, to acknowledge the idealism and heroism of the rebels. They were both ordinary and extraordinary at the same time. The leaders of 1916 were remarkable men and women. Quoting a Dublin Dispatch, the American poet Joyce Kilmer reported in the New York Times in the immediate aftermath of the Rising that they had gone out quote, with a revolver in one hand and suffocates in the other. That might be a little bit involved about that. Uh, and also, of course, one of the things that we wanted to bring forward was the 1916 proclamation, which was an enormous. Its first lines were Irish men and Irish women. It addressed all the children of the nation. <laughs> and that was very revolutionary in 1916, when you think of the role of women in society. So when we had, did our series of three, three parts and an accompanying and feature documentary, uh, one of the things we hoped to do was to restore the complexities of Irish history, and also to emphasize the international aspect that we felt had been too long over London, and one of the things I suppose about being based an Irish person based in a US university is that it gives us, a, a somewhat obviously, a, a different perspective. And one of the things I suppose that, that really motivated me was that instead of looking at 1916 in this terribly insular way, both as an islander says and ourselves in our neighbouring land, I wonder that if we were to pull back the focus. And look at the, at the 1916 rebellion and the Irish or revolutionary period in the life of what was going on in Europe and what was going on in the world. Would we ask the same questions or would we find the same answers? Um, and 1916 and it didn't just change Ireland, and it didn't change Ireland indefinitely. But it was also, I think, the beginning of a ripple effect in India, in Africa, which would pay out in the final dissolution of the British Empire. The empire on which at one stage the sun never set. Thank you.
0: their limits, their controversies, their controversies. Um, and, and so uh, I'm going to invite the audience to ask questions. Um, I think that would be good, and if you all want to speak to each other, just say that. We certainly make space for that, so comments, yes, and please say your name and your institution perhaps, and I'll take several questions before
5: we, you know. We, before we want, we'll make a bouquet of questions. Yes. Um, from the Critical Global Studies Institute at Harvard University. So my question is very simple. Um, I'm wondering if a certain reenactment of events in the documentary film can be regarded as a part of documentary or as a part of feature film. I mean, it's a, it's a very good indication to show that the lines, division line Feature films and documentary films is very much below. On the other way around, for example, if you have a look at the Schindler's List, this Polish camera director Kaminsky, uh, this film the, uh, the whole this, uh, Schindler's List, but he used handheld camera for about half of the whole film of Schindler's List, means that this handheld camera used by the CNN news reporters. So we didn't know that, but while we are watching Shindra's List, we feel as if we are watching TV news. Because it's a very minor trembling, though we can recognize that trembling. So this is also a very good example to show where is the dividing line between documentary and picture photos. Thank you. Yes, James. Uh, My question is, can I be heard? My question is actually a follow-up on that one, um, uh, and, and thinking more generally about this new genre in the last 25 years of the film based on fact, usually highly stylized, sometimes with documentary footage at the end. American Hustle would be a good example of that. It's another example of the blurring. My question was actually more pointedly for Brianna, because I was thinking in particular of uh, two films that had a big impact, but they were also fiction films, Um, Michael Collins, and then what I think of as Ken Loesch's answer, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Um, They defined kind of two poles, two parties, the difference between the nationalist take and the socialist take on 1916, which I hadn't quite realized had gone back so far in the media history, so thanks for pointing that out. But I was just wondering, because of the massive popularity of especially Jordan's film, it was the most widely seen fiction film in Irish history, I think, um, how did you situate visually and otherwise what you were doing in respect to that, the massive popularity of, of that one? Thank
6: you. Yes. Thanks, Freeman, for a fine presentation. Lou Gibbons from Formerly from the parish of Notre Dame in America.
3: Yeah. And parish it is. <laughs> uh,
6: the reenactment issue, which came up in the act of killing, and indeed was kind of reproduced or anticipated in the 1966 series Insurrection, whereby it pretended it was a current affairs broadcast. So, as you say, it, it pretended that television cameras were present even when the planning of the rebellion was taking place. You can imagine if British intelligence (laughs) could find out about the intelligence. But the curious thing is the reporters were dressed in modern dress in a Brechtian kind of distanciation. And constantly in some of these Irish documentaries, the use of montage the use of Brechtian effects, mm-hmm. were not just reproducing, if you like, romantic her- heroism or quality. So we're doing, in fact, what Joyce was doing with the epic, that it was cross-cutting the epic with kind of modernist techniques. And in, in a sense, we're introducing a kind of critical distanciation. I'm not sure, and of course the issue comes up, either, this was lost on the audience or not, whether the audience were picking up on this. But nonetheless, when one looks back at some of these productions, they, they are quite innovative in ways that belie their so-called naturalism or their so-called realism. So in, in that sense, I think that, and you introduced versions of that into the recent documentary and give it that kind of a lift. But just one issue, and this is more a question and a query, one of the issues that has come up in terms of the decade of centenaries, as it's called in Ireland now, is a kind of equality in the eyes of memory and history between the 1916 rising and the Battle of the Somme. The, the whole emphasis is on inclusiveness and reaching out and healing past wounds. But such is the inclusiveness (coughs) that the atrocities of the battle of the Somme, and indeed the whole question of the Great War, in many terms a senseless war, a war that was a catastrophe, is being equated with wars of liberation and wars of emancipation. And it is very difficult to get a discourse to articulate that in the current decade of commemorations, because notions of liberation, emancipation, decolonization are kind of off the agenda. And you were right to say that one of the ways Irish broadcasters and producers like you got around and indeed Jane Almeyer is by internationalizing it. So in a way, you could bring in the decolonizing discourse at one remove to India or Africa mm-hmm. or whatever. So, could, I, mean, I mean, this is just raising a series of issues rather than resolving them, but i just like your response. Thanks again. Let's
0: let's pause there and then uh, begin with Joyce, perhaps, on the reenactment, the question of the Donahue versus, versus uh, feature film. Uh, uh, I think perhaps I could
1: uh, address that issue, too. but. Uh, I think—do you want to? No. no. Okay. I think this uh, very rigid uh, definition or differentiation of genres itself is not necessarily true. And even uh, realistic film—I mean, uh, fiction, they are not realistic itself. So all text, artistic text, they are fictional. But for example, the difference between official— a uh, docudrama, and there's uh, Oppenheimer's uh, reenactment. Of what or what kind of reality is presented? So I think that's a major issue, right? Even if uh, the documentary uh, would assume a very realistic, objective uh, uh, voice and documenting everything, it is still could be fictional in some way. So, yeah, that, that is big. But uh, for Oppenheimer's uh, case, case uh, to allow the uh, perpetrators to reenact the past and also their impulsive uh, return to the scene in those vivid details actually also spoke up their haunting memories in, uh, in, in some way. It's also a traumatic experience for themselves, so they cannot get really let go. And all right, so that is a different reality that we are witnessing. But I think what's very tri- uh, intriguing in uh, that mode of reenactment, not to let the victim itself to tell their uh, suffering, but to let these uh, perpetrators to reenact that their these uh, as I said, it's a trope of the whole regime, the whole political system, the mentality. Yeah. If I just want to insert a remark there, because
0: I think that one of the fears that 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 those two films create in me is the fear that we come away thinking these people are somehow perverted, deeply, ontologically perverted, in some sense. And the presence of the young guy whose brother has been killed works against that, cuts against that, because he is, in fact, so sensitive and tries to turn those perpetrators into self, into people who reflect he's not successful, really. but, But I think he plays a critical part in... In, main t- in, in maintaining even the humanity of these of these wretched uh, perpetrators. And I think that's a remarkable feature of those films. But would someone else like to take up this? this?
2: Well, I, uh, it's interesting that the green-neck question is in both uh, films, uh, or works we were dealing with. And I think the reenactment question is posed to documentary nowadays. Um, And it was in the beginning of the history of documentary. Flaherty, like the first first time the word documentary was used was by Grierson to uh, name the work of Flaherty. And those were enacted documentaries. And then uh, direct cinema, cinema vérité, or observational cinema in the late 50s and in the 60s, devalued reenactment. And now reenactment is back as a strategy to exactly create some distance, I think. And it's very interesting in the in the case of this filmmaker I was talking about that um, it goes to the point of using science fiction um, in order to create a space where um, he, the people who suffered violence are not portrayed as like powerless victims and are not shown as crying or as but it allows them to have some uh, another kind of space to perform. So performance, um, in this case, acts to uh, create documents of a case that, about which there's no documentation. So the film, through reenactment and performance, creates documents. Um, and I think these films pose questions about the, dis, dis, the distinctions. I mean, is it useful to think in, in terms of documentary versus feature films? City of God is one of a very powerful film. I, I assume many of you probably know it. It was shot with a camera, a held hand camera. Um, so it, it, the result is very powerful.
4: Yeah, um, it's a huge issue. Reenactments, recreations—you know—I think maybe reenactment, as shown in particular that film, very disturbing film, the act of killing. I think it's slightly different from the way that most directors, producers, uh, were dealing with recreations. Certainly, in lower, in lower budget documentary. I'm specifically speaking, I suppose, of historical documentary, where you're describing historical events and therefore I think you have an ethical responsibility as a filmmaker to tell those events in as historically accurate a way as possible. That's my very strong belief. But I would also think there's also a question of ethics. I found it very difficult to watch an act of killing because I felt when that man, the, the, the paramilitary leader, the killer, uh, was trying to get victims for his to re they were visibly traumatised again. I would find that as a, as a, as a sure. filmmaker something that I, I don't think I would, would wish to do, you know. Uh, because I think you've got to be very careful when you're speaking to people. When you, as a documentary, if you're speaking to people, interview people. Now, whenever we're interviewing academics, which is what we did for 1916, where you're asking their professional opinion as professional historians, that's one thing. And you actually also have a, an ethical responsibility not to uh, misrepresent their views by cutting in particular ways. But if you're, uh, I did another, number of other documentaries where you're talking to people who are opening up about personal drawings. And uh, I think you have an ethical responsibility for those people and subjects, you know, not, not to push it too far, not to for the sake of getting uh, good shots or, 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 or
2: The subjects on white Out Black in were the ones who suggested that they wanted to make a science fiction film.
4: No, that's they, know. Yeah, the more the merrier. Like there is no one way to do this, and I do think that gentleman that spoke about children's list and the hand-held camera. If you were to go to something like Bloody Sunday, for example, and and uh, Paul Greenbass's depiction of Bloody Sunday, you really feel you're there. You feel you're caught up in the terror and, uh, and just not knowing of it all. You know, so I do think that can work very well, I think, from the, from the perspective particularly of, of feature film that's based on historical work. But to go back even then to Michael Collins, um, historically, Michael Collins is portrayed as, and you asked me, Jim, um, how did I deal with that, or was that, was that in our minds when we were doing 1916? Only the fact that we used Lee <laughs> the big but, uh Because obviously, that was a Hollywood-type movie, and Neely Jordan used Hollywood-type tropes in uh, the gangster movie and all of that stuff, and it's intercutting back and forth. So, we definitely didn't want to go that way, you know. Um, uh, but I think things like Michael Collins, and of course, The Wind that Shakes the Barney, I think they're two remarkable films in very different ways. And of course, Luke has written admirably on The Wind that Shakes the Barney in particular, but also Michael Collins, um, and defended it from attacks that are ideologically-based attacks, actually, um, and very aggressive kinds of attacks. But those were extremely important movies. They're important movies because they get people interested in history. Where I have certain reservations, obviously, is where people like, like Neil Jordan, for, as he says himself, uh, was well, an aesthetic purpose. But he was asked why he brought, there's one scene that depicts a true event in Dublin, where the British Army went into Croke Park after having a, Suffered a loss of their intelligence officers. Michael Collins' squad went out and shot dead a large number of British Army intelligence officers in their beds on Sunday morning. Uh, as a reprisal, British soldiers entered Pro Park, opened up on innocent civilians and uh, football players, and killed a great number of them. For dramatic effect uh, in Michael Collins, the film, they go in in an armored car. No, no armored car existed. They did not go in in an armored car. I have problems with that in a sense that he was asked why he did that. And he said he did it because he needed, he needed a scene that lasted exactly 2.1 minutes or something a bit crass. But my problem with that is... The researchers did go in and they did kill those civilians. So why do you why do you give people then chances to to question the veracity of something that actually happened by like, like, by messing with historical facts for no good reason? Then you want two minutes as opposed to two minutes, two point five minutes, you know? So I think there is a onus on on, on filmmakers um, to be responsible to be responsible about historical accuracy. I mean, it's one of the things that I really wanted to do. But this was we only had historians. Like, we didn't have opinion holders, or we didn't, not that there's anything wrong with opinion holders, not that there's anything wrong with journalists, but one of the purposes, for me, of the kinds of big, historical, uh, contextualizing uh, documentary-type narratives is that it has to be accurate. We, We want to tell people, we want to inform people, so they can make informed decisions. No, I know I haven't answered Luke about the battle of the song. Um, I think I agree. I think there, that the people within the whole commemoration thing, that that definitely needs to be pushed as an equivalence. Uh, I don't think we did that, but I think you also have to put the battle of the song back, where it was. Um, for me, one of the most uh, moving parts of the 1916 documentaries was using the words of James Connolly when he talked about what the reality of the trenches was for, for Irish young Irish Wars men. And we showed that. We had, a, we had an actor's voice reenacting James Connelly's voice, where he talks about that about the slaughter in the trenches. But it's over actuality footage of dead bodies in the trenches, and for me, it was hugely powerful.
0: We're going to have to stop there. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Just a question: well, yeah. that is a second traumatization. Because the, the people that involved uh, in the reenactment of the, the scene, they, are, uh, they, they didn't experience it. They live in the same society that is uh, totally ignorant. i mean those young children and young people— ignorant of, of what happened 50 years ago. So this, uh, the silence and the, the, the society of denial has to be addressed. And through this uh, reenactment, uh, we see the second reality that's generating. The same society of fear and recirculation of the antagonism every generation. So I think this is a one way I would look at it. So those people who are involved, it's, except those uh, perpetrators, they are some of them didn't think they are they, they should be uh, blamed. They are heroes. So this, uh, how do we face this uh, uh, the entire society of denial? I know which stops up here. We need to stop there. Thank you very much. Thanks.